He can preach with one arm tied behind his back. <laughs> okay, so this morning's scripture comes from uh, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Jesus had just been up in the far north, actually beyond Galilee, gone up into Tyre and Sidon, which today you and I would call Lebanon. He was in Gentile territory. He had that remarkable experience with a Gentile woman who asked for help, and he ultimately provided it for her. And then they began to return to Galilee. As they made their way through Galilee, Jesus did not want anyone to know his whereabouts because he wanted to go apart in order to teach his disciples. Now, Jesus' ministry is uh, remarkable in that it is open, really, to everyone. One of his defining uh, attributes, of course, is the unconditional regard in which he treats each uh, human being that he meets. Um, But there are other moments when he goes aside with his disciples because the things that he has to teach, the explication that he wants to undertake for them about the revolutionary nature of what he is preaching, he thinks requires a little more careful attention in the give and take that's possible in a small group. And so he takes them apart and he teaches them this. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed to some people who want nothing to do with God. Now, the Son of Man is this uh, curious phrase uh, which Jesus uses to refer to himself in the third person. When he says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. No one else in the Gospels is reported of having talked about Jesus, having said to him, you are the Son of Man, or the Son of Man is over there. Uh, The only person who uses the title is Jesus to refer to himself in the third person. He's employing a phrase from the book of the prophet Daniel. It's an apocalyptic vision that Daniel had where a son of man in the time of a great conflict between forces of goodness and evil, between light and dark, a son of man would descend from heaven upon a cloud and would vanquish the forces arrayed against God, those who do not stand with or for God. So Jesus uses this term to refer to himself. He sees himself in that tradition. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed by people who want nothing to do with God. They will execute him, and then three days after his execution, he will be risen and will be alive. Now we hear that, so we go, oh yeah, we knew that. We're looking at all these stories retrospectively. We've heard the end of the story. We've been raised and inculcated, immersed in this idea about death and resurrection. But now bear in mind, these these simple disciples, this is revolutionary ideas. And what Jesus is doing in his ministry, befriending the poor, loving the unlovable, spending time with the despised, sticking his thumb in the eye of the empire and the forces and the powers that be. And he says he's going to die and rise and be alive. Now, if you had left everything you had to follow this itinerant preacher, 
And halfway into the middle of nowhere, on the side of a hill, he says this. Would you say, oh, yeah, that's what we expected. Yeah, we're with you. That's good. We're done with that. We knew he, we knew he was going to say that. No. They did not know what he was talking about, but they were afraid to ask him. So they came to Capernaum. This is the town where Jesus spends most of his time in uh, Mark's gospel. Not Nazareth, the place of his birth, but Capernaum. They came to Capernaum, and when he was safe at home, he asked the disciples, So, what were you discussing on the road down here to Capernaum? The silence was deafening because they had been arguing with one another over who among them would be the greatest. Sounds like today, doesn't it? He sat down and he summoned the twelve, the disciples, and he said, so, you want to be first. You want to be in first place. Then, take the last place. Be servant of all And he put a child in the middle of the room. And then cradling the little one in his arms. Didn't you love the way Vanessa cradled uh, Ryan? What a beautiful baby. Cradling the little one in his arms, he said, whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me. And far more than me embraces God who sent me. Amen. May God bless us with increased understanding and discernment of the wisdom um, in these words from Scripture. So this is Jesus in his daily work. This is Jesus in his life. Um, This is the way he was. He was always uh, looking to find the living presence of God in every moment and in each person that he met. Jesus is practicing a ministry in which he affirms the dignity of every human being. And it seems to me that any authentic, genuine religion, that is to say, a religion which is intended to do what the word religion says, which is to reconnect, religio means to realign or to reconnect by the ligaments, get it, religio, is to connect us with each other, connect us with ourselves, connect us with God. Any authentic, genuine, life-giving religion has to affirm, must have as its first order of business, to affirm the inherent dignity of every single person. You may have seen the uh, blackboard uh, anagram, not anagram, epi- uh, not, what do you call them, those, uh, anyway, a saying <laughs> um, on Progressive Christianity uh, website. You will never look in the eyes of a person who is not loved by God. You will never look in the eyes of a person who is not loved by God. This is what Jesus is all about, right? The remarkable thing is doing that gets him killed. 
Okay? Well, let's not make any mistake about that. There's a direct line between that and his execution by the Romans. This is anti-imperial. This is anti, this is swimming against the, the prevailing order of the day. This is uh, going against the grain. This is calling into question all of the systems that are in place to control and keep us down and where we are, where others can use us for their own purposes. And, you know, it's a, it's a grievous thing to admit that churches throughout our history have been as guilty of using religion in order to control people is any other institution in our society. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon. He was born in a city which today is known as Izmir in Turkey, somewhere around 120, 130 of the Common Era, so to say, about a century after Jesus. And he becomes, he's actually raised in a Christian home, which at that time was unusual, becomes a leader in the church, he becomes a bishop. Bishops in those days were shepherds. They were the wise ones who were respected to offer spiritual and moral guidance. And he ends up traveling to southern France, where he becomes bishop in Lyon. Think about this. Just over a century after Jesus' death and resurrection, this itinerant, largely uneducated preacher of no account, who was executed by the Romans in the most heinous and debasing way, his followers on the other end of the Mediterranean. There's no way to explain this other than the providence of God, it seems to me. So here's Irenaeus in the second century, about 150 AD probably, somewhere around in there, and he says that the glory of God is what? Fill in the blank. The glory of God is what? What does Irenaeus say, do you think? This is a real question. Anybody any thoughts? What does he say? The glory of God is... The glory of God is a living person. Some people have already read the book I read. Okay. The glory of God is a living person. And the person come fully alive is the vision of God. Does that sound a lot like what you've heard from a lot of preaching in your lifetime? You know, take this idea of Irenaeus, or this affirmation, not an idea, this declaration. The glory of God is a living person. A human being come fully alive is the vision of God. Take that idea that you are the glory of God and hold that up against the conception that you have of yourself, the vision you have of your own self, the sense of guilt, regret, that you're not this, that, or the other thing enough, that you really should have, could have, would have, didn't, that you let this down, that you didn't do that, the self-denial, the self-recrimination, that is so much a part of our uh, self-consciousness. And they don't match. And what Jesus has done 
And he's come to be with the people who the world despises or counts as last the child. Because, you listen, in, in, in the 21st century, who comes first? Children. <laughs> Look at the baby, okay? We all love babies. But in the ancient world, children came last. The men ate. The women ate. And then the children ate. There was no baby food in the ancient world. Okay. You know why the expression, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, comes from? Everybody would get into the same bathtub. The men first. The women first. Didn't change the water. And then the baby. By the time the baby gets to the bathwater, it's, uh, shall we say, pretty colorful. The baby might slip down there. You wouldn't see it and throw the bathwater out with the baby. Yeah, it's still in it. Kids came last. That's why he chooses the child to affirm that even the one that society counts as last, least important, when you embrace this child is when you embrace Jesus, when you embrace God who sent Jesus. Almost two centuries later, 1900 years later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his seminal work, The Cost and Joy of Discipleship, which he wrote long before his opposition to and martyrdom by the Nazis, he wrote that we think that Jesus came in order to help us transcend our humanity. To get over being human. Rather, he says, Jesus came to help us become truly human, to become our truest selves, to know ourselves to be the beloved children of God, to know ourselves to be the glory of God. Jesus comes to affirm our identity, and to embrace and to pull back the layers of oppression that have distorted our vision of ourselves to understand that you are the glory of God. I do think that this is something that can change everything. If we will allow ourselves to truly live in that consciousness, to know that you will never look in the eyes of a person who is not loved by God. Amen.